Welcome back, everybody. It's Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast. I'm Tim Lindsay. And I'm Christian Bonner. We're talking today about a concert that is important for many different reasons. Uh, Last time around, we talked about 40 Licks and the reissue campaign and what we liked about it. The Stones, of course, went on the Licks tour, which went all around the world and through different sized venues. It actually started here in Toronto at the Palais Royale club show that you can see on the the Four Flicks DVD. And if you have that DVD, you might have also seen bits of the concert we're going to talk about today, which is the Toronto Rocks show from July 30th, 2003 at Downsview Park. And it was notable for a couple different reasons. And I guess the most notable reason, aside from the fact that there were a half a million people there and it was like a big deal for the city, was that it was the first Rolling Stones show both Christian and I attended. And this is, of course, a momentous day for that reason alone. Yes. <laughs> so why don't we just talk about our personal recollections? I mean, we could we could set this show up, but I mean, people know this show, right? Yeah, this is pure Gonzo journalism this time. We are just getting into it. Yeah. And yeah, like there's there, obviously um, it's funny to look back after the pandemic and talk about the the damage that the SARS outbreak did in the early 2000s. Yeah, this is SARS 1.0. Yeah. SARS-CoV-1, not SARS-CoV-2. Coke classic. It's always a little funny to me how Toronto is at the forefront of things, even even when they're bad. Um, so, <laughs> For years after this, if you, if you were traveling and then you told a taxi driver that you were from Toronto, they would ask, you don't have SARS, do you? Yeah. <laughs> For years. Yeah, it was, it was quite unruly and... Um, you know, similarly, the the Asian community was scapegoated, and mm-hmm. then John Cretchen went down to Chinatown and said, "I'm having a great time. We're doing well." It was really kind of overblown, but you couldn't you couldn't get past that in people's minds. And I think that summer there was also a garbage strike. That's right. Yeah, 2002. <laughs> I was actually away finishing high school in Italy for that whole summer, so I was able to avoid pretty much all of this. Yeah. For me, it was my junior year or grade 11, as it's known here in Canada, of high school. Yeah, that was a little confusing for me. Um, but yeah, so, but then coming back, I ended up seeing every Licks show in Toronto with the exception of the Palais Royale. That's the only one that I didn't go to because... It was a hard ticket to get. You you, you and our buddy Bob slept overnight to get into the Phoenix show a couple of years later, but this Palais Royale show was really, really tricky. And we only found out about the Bigger Bang show because of our connections to the CBC. It was like one of those things where we found out we were both just feckless, unemployed, you know, bums at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and so we could take half the day off and just go sleep on the street, you know, to get tickets for it. It, it, it did come at a sacrifice. When you're in high school, things are a little bit different. You don't, you're not really under your own steam. I do remember my my parents being more excited about this show than I was really. <laughs> I was out of I was out of high school. Uh, I was actually starting post secondary at uh, the International Academy of Design and Technology, and I had to skip the day. In retrospect, I didn't need to be there for the whole day. Should we get it? Should we just get into it? Uh, like, or is there any more setup that you want to do? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about the day because I mean, why don't we just say that if you don't know anything about this show, you can look up the Downsview Park 
Toronto Rocks SARS concert. You check a history. Yeah. Um, we won't rehash it all, but like it was a benefit show. You could get a ticket for relatively cheap. And then it was just this big open air park basically with a big stage at the front of it. Yeah. And actually, if you've watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, which I highly recommend, um, it was actually a very similar model to that. Like when they were talking about, it's the, it's the guy in the documentary. It's the guy who's in Gimme Shelter who's like, it's going to be Woodstock East. That dude, I don't remember his name, but he was actually involved in yeah. Woodstock 99. Yeah, yeah. Except this time, this was the model at the time where they would just fence off a certain area. So my arrival, I, I immediately recognized it when I watched the Woodstock documentary because the first thing that happened to me coming in is you've got a really intimidating security guard getting in your face. I had brought water for me and the two other people I'd come with. The guy immediately says, oh, there's only you know, two bottles of water per person. I had six, which was exactly the right amount. Mm-hmm. He just started throwing them in the garbage. And I said, hey, wh- what, are you, what are you doing here? I've got two other people here. And just goes, whatever, get out of the way. But what was funny about the way they set it up is that right after the intense security guard, they had somebody else right behind him going, wow, that guy was an asshole, wasn't he? <laughs> to just like smooth it forward. They gave you a little bit of sympathy. because yeah. yeah, they good cop, bad cop. Yeah, exactly. And they had to, because they had to process, you know, half a million people coming in here. And I had already been um, up all night, uh, you know, for the purposes of this show, let's say drinking beer. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was in like a bit of a state to begin with. And in retrospect, like I would never do this again. I would not stay up all night and then go to like, just get into it in a, pit you know i feel like for somebody who hadn't gone to a lot of concerts at this point and i had not like i'd been to see some of my favorite bands but i wasn't regularly going certainly not to big outdoor shows like this and one of my buddies who i went with also had a broken arm so you know we didn't really want to get right up into the throng at the front yeah we were content to kind of like find a spot to put a blanket down you know kind of halfway back and i think we showed up sort of in the middle of uh, the Isley Brothers set, maybe? That's actually, that was a really cool thing. I'm glad that I did yeah. see them because there actually weren't, yeah. there there weren't a ton of bands that I really cared about. No. I did also, I started up at the front, but I kept wandering around trying to meet up with other people. And one of the funniest things that happened is I was walking through this crowd and I heard somebody say my name and it was a girl from my high school. Mm-hmm like just randomly in my path. And that if anyone has been to shows like that, you know, you're just sitting there trying to find these footpaths through people who are, you know, there was still hacky sacking going on there. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's a lot. And, and there's no, there's really no way to, there's no organized way to get around it. They have the big, like, I was going to say back to the Woodstock thing that it's like, it's literally a walled garden. You know, they would have $6 bottles of water. The reason why they were having all these rules about water is because they wanted to sell you very, very expensive water. I think, I think at that point a bottle of water was like $3 and I was outraged by that, but that's just what they cost now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Time has caught up Um, 20 years later (laughs) with the concert prices, but that's what life is now. It's a life is just a, uh, an overpriced amusement park. We're all, we're all paying carnival food prices now, but we should, we should um, sort of like pay lip service at least to the bands that they booked because I think Michael Cole was involved in this setup who was promoting the licks tour. Well, yeah, 
because he's he's probably the one who reached out to them because of the Stones' relationship with Toronto, and they wanted a big act to come and say it was safe, mm-hmm. you know. And there was a lot of rumors at first about who was going to be there. And what was interesting is that it was one of the few times that, like, the technical um, craft of how you put on a show this big uh, was actually discussed in a public forum. I remember in the newspaper and on the news media, they were saying like the big challenge is how do you move backline for, you know, 15 bands. Mm -hmm. Cause if you look at older festivals, you know, they did Woodstock without even having a PA and you can hear, and then the who showed up with a PA and they said, Oh, thank God we've, we've got something and the show can happen. Right. You can, in subsequent concerts, you can hear Pete Townsend complaining about this. Yeah. 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 The Isle of Wight show. He says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's not for children. What he says there, it's a lot of cursing, but it's uh, very blue. this is much more civilized Canadian approach where it was like, okay, well we know people who can support a production like this. The security company you mentioned, I remember that company because they had the red shirts and I was working for them a couple of years later when the bigger bang, tour came to town. So they were just sort of like the guys you booked for a big concert. It was a private firm. They would have between, you know, 10 and 15 guys way down the front and then people at the gate, people wandering the crowd. There was like an infrastructure in Toronto for this kind of an event. And we'd come quite a long way because this is what, I know, almost 20 years after Live Aid, where they had the rotating stage where, you know, one band was performing one was being torn down backstage and another was being set up. So logistically. Yeah. And that was, that was exactly how people thought they were going to do it. Yeah. They, they thought that I remember hearing that there would be like a rotating backline where people would be setting up and, and, and swinging them in. And what's interesting is I don't really think they did anything that sophisticated because what I noticed about this rewatching it is you can see Malcolm is playing Ronnie's Dusenberg and, Angus is playing one of Keith's 345s. So, and and he's neither of them are using their own amps. So, it's a very unusual way to hear Angus. It's a lot cleaner because I think they're just like, look, we've just got to get points on the board here. We yeah. just need to be able to put on a show. We've we've had 15 bands or whatever it is today. I don't know because they had been touring with ACDC in Europe at this point. I don't know if they had done the same thing or the exact same thing that you're describing, or if on those co-headlining shows that they were doing, if ACDC had like another amp just kicking around specifically for this song where they would come out and feature. Yeah, my guess is that they're using whatever, um, because, you know, Blondie and Mick both also play guitar in the show. So I I have to assume that they were, my my assumption is, I don't have to do anything, but my assumption is um, that, they're using whatever the Stones rig is because it really does not sound like the the normal ACDC stuff, which is funny because their rig was clearly there. But I, I think after a whole day of this, they were probably just like, let's just use what we can yeah, and, and just sort of get into it. But yeah, who else was on the bill? I remember the Well, tea- there was uh, the tea party was on early in the day and I remember them. I think Sam Roberts opened the show. I, I remember seeing a lot of coverage of that the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was having a moment. They were, they started. I think there were some DJ stuff to oh, start yeah, because right. I remember a, DJ, a guy yeah. saying, "Big ups the Rolling Stones," and I I remember thinking, "You don't you do not big ups the Rolling Stones." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know he's he's doing <laughs> he's doing what he can. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kathleen Edwards. There was a French Canadian uh, rock 
Ben Lushikrain. Yeah, I remember that. Was Sass Jordan there? Blue Rodeo, of course. Hometown Boys. Yeah, Sass Jordan with Jeff Healy. Yeah. Came that- out and guested with her on a track. I'm sorry I missed that because he passed away not too long after that. But then the the compare of the day was Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi, the Have Love Will Travel Blues Review, i.e. Yeah, it, technically not the Blues Brothers because we don't have the copyright on that name. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I remember, so I've had my water confiscated and I've had like, you know, food is expensive and like I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a rich guy. The, the other thing around this time was that Alberta had a mad cow outbreak. That's right. There was a bovine spongiform outbreak. Yes, I remember this. So they were sitting there at one point, you know, and I'm like hungry and I'm tired and I'm dehydrated and everything. And Dan Aykroyd comes out and he's got like, oh, I've got this great Ontario wine and this wonderful Alberta steak that I'm eating here on stage. And I just thought, man, <laughs> it's like <laughs> rub it in my face. You start to understand the, the French rip. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, it was very let them eat cake. And yeah. uh yeah, like his emceeing, it was a little out there, I think. It was a yeah. little over the top. And I mean, he he knew the crowd he was playing for, like the kind of the boomer blues lawyer, uh, Q107 classic rock radio audience. And I don't remember, was this being broadcast on radio all day? Like, was there a radio coverage of it or just television? Oh, it must, it must have been, I don't know. Um, cause there's, there's a, uh, broadcast mix of this, the stone set particularly that landed on the Wolfgang's vault oh, yeah. streaming well, that, yeah. site, which has been bootlegged. I assume there, there may have been a recording or a broadcast of all of it, but I would bet that most, since a lot of the acts are Canadian, mm-hmm. there was probably limited interest outside of Canada. Right. Now the, the big, the like international kind of headliners that I remember people being quite excited about were the Flaming Lips, Justin Timberlake, and then, you know, the ACDC and Stones pairing, but also, um, you had the Guess Who and and Rush, Rush. right? You know, so those were the kind of like big CanCon rockers. And this is before the internecine breakup of the Guess Who and the 21st century where the two main songwriters aren't even allowed to use that name anymore. (laughs) Um, Um, So those were, those were like big deal homecoming shows. But the first real moment there, I think probably one of the things that everybody remembers was the bottling of Justin Trudeau. Like, People heard Justin Timberlake. Or sorry, yes. Justin Trudeau. They'll, they'll <laughs> do it to him too. Justin Trudeau. They'll do it to him too, I'm sure. But, but Justin- yeah, no, he came out and he was, yeah, this is right on the hail, the tails of his first solo album after NSYNC. He had just broken up with, with Britney Spears. And yeah. I thought that there was a lot of talk from like angry dudes about how furious they were that he was going to be there at all. But I remember, I think this was a very smart thing of him to do to, to open up. The first thing he said when he got on stage was, ladies, make some noise. And the whole place erupted. Yeah. Right? Like, it's very funny with the sort of rock guys being like, well, you know, I know what's good and what's better. And, you know, he knew his audience. He knew how to play to them. Mm -hmm. And I thought he did a very good job. If you watch the footage, he's dodging those things. I mean, he's a pro. He was dodging these bottles. Those $3 bottles of water are raining on the stage, yeah. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to do that? Like, it's a lot. Some of them were full. Yeah. Of what? I don't know. But yeah, they were full. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> we're not going to say. I, I remember 
even then, you know, and I was I was a very opinionated young man, but I still thought that was pretty distasteful. Yeah, like, of course. I, I don't think that that's what you should do. Throwing anything at a gate. Like, don't pay for great seats only to throw things. And that's made a big comeback in recent years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really has. People are, people are throwing stuff like crazy now. That's not my kind of music. I was not into it. But yeah, you could see people really, you know, it, it, the audience really was split there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that everybody hated him. It was that like, yeah, basically every woman in the place was into it, and like all these sort of sweaty shirtless dudes were were not having it. So if you think about you know a crowd of um, half a million, so maybe half the people there are. Let's just say for the purposes of argument, half of the crowd is men and half the crowd is women. Probably was leaning male, but. Take away 250,000, you still have 250,000 that are probably pretty divided. That means there's about 100,000 people in the crowd who hate you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think most entertainers tend to focus on that. Unfortunately, it's just something about the way we are that we're, we're looking at the one person with their arms crossed rather than, you know, everybody else who's enjoying it. But that was rough. And I, I thought he handled it well and got through it. And then nothing happened. Um, <laughs> the, the show just proceeded. The no, pers- I, the I do remember the guess who, because my buddy with the broken arm was a huge guess who fan. And he was quite excited that it was like, I don't know if it was the original classic 60s lineup or whatever, but in the 60s, it was a pretty big deal for the guess who to be headlining if they came to town. And then, you know, uh, subsequent decades, there was you know, the two main songwriters went solo. You had Randy Bachman and you have. Uh, the other guy whose name I can never remember, um, Burton Cummings, Bruce. Yeah. Burton Cummings and the Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, they're all named Bruce. Uh, they're the, uh, the Australians in Monty Python, but that was a pretty good set. And I was excited because I'd never seen rush either. Um, and I was kind of into them. I didn't really know a lot of their catalog at that point, but they were also had been off the road for about a year at that point. So if you watch any documentaries of them talking about this, they were all really nervous because not only did they idolize half of these bands when they were coming up, but also it was a hometown crowd and they were not in touring shape. So they were frantically rehearsing to put their set together and they didn't have a sound check, which they were used to always having the luxury of being on the road. And so um, they're all like keyed up and Neil Peart talks about like he's just about to go on and like he feels a tap on his shoulder and turns around and it's this old dude coming up to him and he's like oh man it's probably some fan like trying to get my autograph or whatever and he says oh i'm gonna watch you tonight and it's charlie watts (laughs) and he's like oh shit now i have to perform for charlie watts too yeah like the nervousness now i remember the guests who said i thought they did great rushes again it's not my thing but i thought that they they did great the funniest thing that i remember is uh right after rush's set these two dudes are like okay back to hamilton and i was like <laughs> if you wait 10 minutes it's acdc it's like we just came here for rush <laughs> <laughs> like, that was very funny to me um but the nervousness thing i think that makes sense because so if you talk to anybody here the conventional narrative is acdc stole the show Hmm. but i really felt that they were nervous um especially angus because i was really watching him like a hawk my my first band was an acdc cover band i knew all the parts and i really wanted to you know catch what he was doing and i and i really felt that 
you know, it was not necessarily their the greatest I'd ever heard them, which is not to say that I think they played badly. I just thought it seemed like they were a little, you just get off a plane, you open up here. This is like Brian Johnson says that Keith basically pressured them into doing it. Not that they didn't want to do it, but that they felt obligated yeah. to do it. They were just coming back from Prague. I think it was the previous like three days before this, they had played a show in Prague together and then they all diverted the European tour just to do this show. Yeah, and and like I I think that I'm not arguing against people's public perception. I think at a big festival, ACDC is going to go down really well because it's really simple and tight and confined. And I think that there's a funny thing about what's happened to the meaning of rock and roll and the difference between rock and roll and rock because ACDC is kind of the last generation that I could say has anything to do with what I call rock and roll. Mm-hmm. There are obviously people doing it now. I, I, I'm one of them, I like to think. But but in terms of like a stadium-sized act like this, yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't think that a lot of people are used to the way that the Stones play, and they are as alive and as free and open as they can be. Now, I have my, my own theory about this because the first thing I heard when the Stones were playing was Charlie's first drum fill and start and start me up. There were no guitars in the monitor mix whatsoever. And they're kind of a it's kind of a big part of the stones. And I don't think that people are nobody was sitting there thinking like I was the only one thinking this, I'm sure, that there was something wrong with the mix. Most people just think there's something wrong with the band. So Yeah, yeah. No, I had that perception too. And I was further back. So it wasn't just the monitors, it was the whole PA that was very Yeah, very on. I was pretty far back too. And I think that we were getting like a different mix because up front, the people that I know who were up front could say, like, I was hearing it right off the amps, or like you mm-hmm. were it was raging. Yeah. Um, but most people are not at the front and you know, there's delay towers and all this stuff, and I don't know what happened because I could hear guitars in every other part of the mix, but who knows? Every other mix of every other band. But what I think is very interesting is that whenever I watch the footage, I think they're doing incredible. I think they're playing really, really well. And I think it's like one of the best set lists they've ever played. That opening block, Start Me Up, Brown Sugar, You Got Me Rocking, Tumbling Dice, Don't Stop. Yeah. I couldn't have, I would have written it that way if, if I had the choice. Like that's exactly what I wanted to hear in that order at that time and uh you know ruby tuesday was great fantastic getting to hear the nearness of you is a tough one to do at a enormous festival you know getting people to sit and pay attention to that when they they want to get wound up um but i was really happy to hear it i knew he was doing it on the european leg and i I'd, I'd heard the famous bootleg the version that's in basquiat and i loved it and i was really really excited to hear it and that delivered because I started to make my way forward in the crowd as it went on. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't ever address anybody else's perception. The whole point of this podcast is that we have different opinions about the Stones than other people. But I, yeah. I, I've never really felt that that was my experience, that it was like ACDC was incredible and the Rolling Stones played like garbage. Like, but that's what people say around here. So I, I feel like a lot of people have that opinion because they weren't, they were skeptical of the Stones to begin with. And they were maybe a little bit, bummed out that the stones were the headliner and they were maybe you know maybe rooting more for the home team as far as like oh all these canadian bands are on early in the day and then it's 
an Australian band and a British band closing it. I don't know, but yeah, and also and whatever, regardless of the political implications, I have encountered <laughs> that as well from people who were there. And Justin Trudeau again? Yeah, it could be Justin Trudeau. But if you watch, I mean, on YouTube, you can see the forty-minute chunk that was released on the Toronto Rocks DVD, and you can also watch excerpts from the CBC Television broadcast. And the broadcast mix is the Keith Richards Amplifier Show. It is. <laughs> It is not what we heard in the crowd. It is like yeah. all the guitar, well, not all the guitars. Ronnie's guitar is pretty low in the mix, but Buried. particularly Keith's guitar is like really on full exposed, you know, everything turned up. And the Stones are such a ensemble that if the mix, if you mix them like a traditional rock band, it sounds terrible. Like they're not this thing where it's like one guitar is raging and it, all this vocal and stuff like that. I pointed out before, like if you listen to the original mix of Start Me Up, the drums are very, very low by today's standards, certainly the the kick drum. Um, and Jack Joseph Puig tells this story about mixing. It's the new rock mix of what ended up as the new rock mix of Don't Stop. And he says that when he first brought it in the computer and he was doing it the way that he normally would, he wanted to like put everything on the grid and time adjust stuff and just thought this is a disaster. But he, he was mentored by Glenn Johns and this sort of light bulb went off in his head and said, there is a volume at which this works, right? Like there's an, a, there's an appropriate volume for each instrument and section where this will work. And he said that once he sort of flattened the faders and just committed to what it is and pushed everything up, then he said, Oh my God, that's the Rolling Stones. Right? So, I think that that's a huge part of how I would first to tell you nobody really cares about mixing and production in a technical sense, um, but it does really have an effect on how it comes off in the end. Yeah, and I think the the DVD mix, which I think was redone after the event by Ed Cherney, who was their preferred guy, he also mixed the tracks that are on the four flicks DVDs. Um, it's pretty good. It's quite narrow. So it is, it's designed to be heard on television. He did Stripped. Yes, Stripped as well is one of his. But there is something kind of cool to compare and contrast because you can't watch both on YouTube. You can watch the Ed Cherney songs for those 40 minutes. And then for the other tracks, there's the broadcast mix. So, you know, you ha you've got to hear Tumbling Dice like full bore Keith. You're going to hear You Got Me Rockin' full bore Keith. Well, that's what you want. Yeah. Why don't we take a break in a minute and then we'll go through the whole set list song by song. But to just finish that thought, like it is, it's good to sort of see the two different approaches and, you know, compare for yourself. The video quality of neither the DVD nor the, the broadcast on YouTube is great by today's standards. It was all standard definition cameras. But we're going to do it uh, again. I don't think they have the masters. Well, but look. Well, maybe they'll remix this. I don't know. We'll see. We've asked for it. We've done it so many times. I'm just going to say this would make a fantastic archival release. It, it yeah, because be, you have the two guest spots. You know, it's Justin Timberlake and ACDC aren't exactly... Uh, not exactly a lightweight. 50 years into their career, ACDC are still making the cover of, what was it, Time magazine? I forget. They're doing something this year. Oh, that's a desert trip thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, or whatever they call it, the metal version of desert trip. Power um, trip. <laughs> yeah, power trip. That, I think I believe that was correct. But I was going to say about the public perception thing. I was just talking about this with our friend Bob that like the '90s was a super active period for the Stones. They did a ton of great work. The touring, even if you don't like the records, I mean the tours 
from those years are fantastic. They've been playing consistently since they got back together in 89. But there was a real negativity about the Stones in those days that they have actually finally outlived. You know, that now they're kind of cool again, even if people don't really think of them as much as, say, we do. But there was a real 90s, early 2000s cynicism about them at that point. And I think that that also really played into it. I don't think this has ever bothered them because what they're seeing is, you know, their millions of fans and their royalty statements and their offers to license their music. It's never stopped being meaningful and important to people. But certainly among younger people, it was very, very uncool. I I had that attitude at this point. I mean, I didn't I didn't really know the catalog other than Hot Rocks and I think Voodoo Lounge because I had you know I'd heard the CD of Voodoo Lounge at some point before this, but I didn't know Tumbling Dice because I'd never heard Exile on Main Street. Like I was in that late nineties beta mindset of <laughs> the Rolling Stones are just like the Hot Rocks stuff and I they haven't done anything good since. Yeah, and I I felt that way. There was a lot of that about David Bowie at that time too. If you, if you mm. talk to people, like David Bowie has ascended to this other status, but like in the 90s people were just saying, "Well, he shouldn't do drum and bass and he never did anything better than Ziggy Stardust and that's all I want to hear." And because of this, I didn't go see him in 2002, which I really really regret because the reality tour really was it. And that was about the best it got from for my money. And what I really love about seeing uh, younger people is that, like, when I wore a Beatles t-shirt in high school, I would be made fun of, you know, whereas now it's just an accepted thing that some people like older music and do that style, which I think is very funny. It's great, really, but it's kind of interesting how, like, Nirvana fans used to make fun of me. And now you, whenever Dave Grohl opens his mouth, he keeps comparing himself to the Beatles. They're, they're looking for that kind of classic rock legendary status. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately that's what awaits that that's Valhalla. Like that's where everybody wants to be. And I yeah. think that it is not the correct attitude to, to hate on people for being successful. You know, I just, I can't get with it. Okay. So on that note, we'll take a little, uh, pause for the cause here. Um, and we'll come back and talk about each song in the set and, and why it needs to be re-released in a definitive version for Atmos and all the other reasons that we nerd out about on this podcast. Yeah. So welcome back from the break, everybody. Um, We're talking now about the songs the Stones played and the order they played them. Christian briefly ran down the first part of the set. Um, But like we said before, Dan Aykroyd Aykroyd (laughs) did his inimitable... Uh, his thing to introduce them and bring them up unhinged and uh i remember the crowd being pretty stoked at this point i mean acdc set was really good christian's right that they they did have a bit of nervousness but i think that they did kick ass and that was a that was a big deal for a lot of people seeing you know oh yeah uh brian johnson you know ringing the bell for the beginning of uh, hell's bells and the you know the thunderstruck intro and everything people going nuts yeah yeah and that was the classic lineup right like you can never see that version again and um, Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate for me because it was just kind of a blur i mean i was in it i was loving it but you know i did get to see malcolm and phil rudd you know if if they come back I'll, i'll see him again but that was very special. Yeah, they they played at Downsview ten or so years later with Brian, but Phil Rudd wasn't in the band at that point, and Malcolm 
I'd pass the baton uh, over to his nephew Stevie. So yeah, you're right. The ACDC back in black lineup in their full glory. And then I think about 10, 15 minutes after the end of their set, it wasn't a long time. And again, like none of the bands, like we said, had any sound check. So if their guitars were low in the mix, it was just because it was just introduction and on you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Keith walks out and hits the first note to start me up and there they're off. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely seemed pretty rough and ready and you know, there's things that are good about that, but no one was in a state to give anyone the benefit of the doubt at that point, you know, but it is very funny how people saying, Oh, like nobody liked the stones or they didn't do well, but like in the footage, everybody's seems to be having a good time. You know, I, I was having a good yeah, time. People were dancing. Yeah. Hmm. There were people singing along. People were, you know, there weren't beard scratching. Yeah. Tut tut happening around my section. There was a lot of drunkenness. There but, were definitely you know, uh, drunkenness. Start me up was good. It landed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like uh I noticed watching the footage obviously like I I uh you know you watch these same songs over and over and over again and and especially with Charlie I always find it very amazing how they do different things every night. But I was really thinking this time about Chuck Lavelle's parts and how, you know, mm. he'll he'll do a twinkly little piano fill here or he'll fill at the end of the chorus with an organ swell or something like that. But when you don't need to hear him, he's very quiet and supportive, right? Because, you know, you really want the guitars in that band to, to speak. We've talked about this with Billy Preston. You know, you can't overshadow the main stones. And I think that his parts are so complimentary without ever being intrusive. Mm-hmm. And that, that just really got to me there. And it, it's, it's really cool one of the coolest things about Start Me Up is the amount of space and quietness in it mm-hmm. that gradually gets more and more filled up as the song goes on. Because if you listen to the beginning, you know, it's like there's a lot of space between each of the guitar parts. Ronnie might just play a few licks here and there, but by the end of it, they're both kind of going full bore. And there's a real dynamic to it and a real a breathy openness to the way that they play that I, I really noticed this time and thought was fantastic. And you can see in the footage that they're getting a kick out of doing that. Like Keith will like during the gap where he's not playing the riff, he'll like lean on Ronnie and see how long he can wait just holding it on his shoulder until he has to go back down to the guitar, you know, and ditto with Ronnie and Mick and everybody's like really hyping up this song. And, you know, Mick's performance is obviously off the charts. The thing that you were saying about Chuck um, slipping in and out of that featured role into a more supportive role. I really got that sense here with Daryl. And this was the first time I'd ever even heard of Daryl Jones. Like I, I had no concept of the lineup change actually as a real casual stones fan. And I was like, Oh, who's the guy playing bass? He's dynamite on this. Like he's really holding it down. That's what happened to me. The first time I saw them, I, I literally knew nothing about Bill Wyman until my guitar teacher told me about him and I love Bill's playing we say this all the time but I remember it's the same thing that that Texan guy that when we were at the 2015 show and he just said this is the best bass player I've ever seen in my life you know that's what everybody's (laughs) experience is with Daryl and he's such an underrated guy because you know despite having worked with literally the biggest rock band of all time uh, Sting uh, Miles Davis Madonna He's not a guy like, like very similar to Lisa Fisher. 
he's not somebody to go out and self-aggrandize. There's people who are real, genuine musicians who care a ton about the craft, and there's people who are more entertainers. I'm probably more in the second category, so I don't mean anything against this, but like those people are serious, serious professionals. You get the sense that there's nothing that they can't do. Yeah. Daryl is so, if you listen to, just listen to the Miles Electric Band and then listen to the way he plays, you know, Jumping Jack Flash. Like, there's, I love the idea that he can get busy and get crazy and does, but does so selectively. And the way he, the way he pedals in Jumping Jack Flash, You Got Me Rocking, I mean, that's the sound to me. Anyway, that's, that's all, that's the end of that thought. Yeah, no, um, and Start Me Up is, it's a linchpin of the show because you can play it at the beginning of the set. You can play it towards the end of the set, but either way it takes the crowd up a level and that it always works. It seems to always land, but you don't realize exactly why until you pick apart individual performances. And what stuck out to me about this one is that thing you were mentioning about the dynamics that there is an interplay happening between each musician and it goes in waves and it's you know subject to what's happening in the song at any particular time and again being a casual fan i was like oh start me up i heard this on the radio a hundred million times why do i need to go see them live and this is like an argument case in point right here oh yeah yeah no it's wildly different um and what's interesting now is that steve jordan is with a lot of his parts, he's playing a little closer to the record. Mm-hmm. And I, I love Steve Jordan. He's the only man for the job here. But I, I really miss... Part of the excitement of seeing the Stones multiple times for me is seeing what's going to be different this time. You know, And once you have a certain template in your mind, I may be uh, too attached to the way they did Jumping Jack Flash in the 90s or this and that. You have your favorites, but I'm always interested to hear differences and new approaches because they really put the energy of the day and 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 their mood they really have a way of playing them and keeping them really really fresh there are other bands acdc they're a fantastic band they don't change anything about the show you know it's and that's that's great as far as like delivering an experience or a product to uh, your audience but i really like to hear I go into it every time thinking like, what have they got for me this time? Like, what have they been working on? Because I really like to hear musicians doing what they like and and taking some risks. And they are very, very bold when it comes to reinterpreting their own music and not ignoring the moment, right? Like the whole key to the sound, I think, is staying in the moment and not overthinking it. So that means you're going to get some volatility there. And I think that that's that's really the quality that I love in in their, their live show. So then I know it's, it is not just a Rolling Stones show, but this is like a big event and they know that they have to kind of play to the gallery in a certain way. And I mean, having, like you say, those five like up-tempo rock songs for this audience is the perfect choice. Um, Going straight into Brown Sugar. Again, it's uh, a song everybody knows. Like even I, in this, at this point in my life, I had not really appreciated that brown sugar is something that they always do. And I was like, Oh, I really hope that they play that. Cause I would like to hear that. You know, like I was, if the mindset that we always talk about, we're like, there are people in the audience who haven't heard brown sugar before and want to hear brown sugar. And they want to hear that sax solo and Bobby keys. Like, and it's super gonna... funny now. Cause it's out of the show. Now you, yeah. now you can't hear it, <laughs> but like Bobby keys, like lights it up 
and everybody goes nuts. Oh yeah, right? the, the Licks tour you know. was great for Bobby. He was obviously towards the end. He was having some health problems and things like that. But like when, especially because they got to do so many more of the obscure ones. You know, they were bringing, they were doing Sweet Virginia regularly, and they were doing Can't You Hear Me Knocking regularly, mm-hmm. and they were even fooling around with things like Slave. So I think he got a lot more action this time, and he was really playing his uh playing his best i think around this tour yeah all about you yeah (laughs) you know stuff like that it's it's the things that you don't expect him to really have that incredibly soulful thing that he can do so well he obviously can do brown sugar really well like that's he's synonymous but yeah that's kind of like his main thing but he's got that subtler thing too um and it's very funny now to be nostalgic for a version of the touring band that is now quite different because mm-hmm. now Ease is out. Yeah. But the horn section's smaller. Yeah. Carl Denson's fantastic. I love everybody. I love everybody who's in the band now. I have nothing against them, but like the Bridges to Babylon lineup that is more or less, I think it's the same. Uh, the horn, one of the two. Well, the, you have Tim Reese in this one as well, which he was not there for Bridges to Babylon. Oh, yeah, right. Tim Reese shows up. We can here. talk about him again later because he plays more keyboards later in the set. But that style, that sh- that size and shape with the four horns, you know, and, and Chuck and Luisa and Blondie. Bernard and Blondie, yeah. that's my favorite version of the live band. There's nothing wrong with what they've been doing lately. I totally get it. Uh, the economy's hurting us all. You know, they gotta <laughs> they got to cut those costs too. And you know Mick. You know, Mick doesn't suffer for it. He's, he's right there trying to get them all in the black. But that's a funny thing to me because when when I saw Lisa in the show, I just I'm always so happy to see her. I think she was the greatest. Um, you know, uh, I think she brought so much to the band, and um, you know, it's hard to compete with somebody who's only been Sasha Allen's only been doing it uh, a couple tours now. You know, since it seems like it's not that long, but it's been since 2015, yeah, or 2016, or whenever whenever they started. It was the no filter on fire whatever yeah that was 15 16 um, is the the dividing line because we saw the last show with lisa in uh quebec in 2015 but they're not even on stage bernard and lisa don't come out until tumbling dice in this version of the show so um the next brown sugar and the next tune you got me rocking it's just chuck and on you got me rocking also daryl singing back up yeah he comes up all the way to the front of the stage for the chorus i love that he sings on you got me rocking and that's to me like because Voodoo Lounge is his first record, I always think that that's like the Daryl song. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about the way that the show is structured because the the Licks tour, and you can see there's the multicam footage on the DVDs where Bernard is under the stage for the first couple songs, just like hanging out. But but that's not that's at our Stones show for a big festival like this. They didn't have an extra monitor. They didn't have enough wireless channels, so they don't do that here. And so these are unique versions, even on the Licks tour. Yeah, and and I was just going to say that this is sort of like the B stage. Mm-hmm. Right, the opening of it is actually the B stage lineup, where it's just yeah the six of them. So there, that works for the 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 rock, you know, the more stripped down rockier ones. And but then you gotta have the backing vocals and you gotta have the horns for tumbling dice. Yeah. I don't think there's any two ways about it. And so it's it gives a nice flow to the show where you think you're you think you're at maximum, you know, you think you're at the full deployment, and then you know seven more people come out, and then you've got a whole other kind of show. Yeah. So it's I think that's really but cool. But you got me rocking. It's worth looking at this version again if you're not look up the one that's on YouTube cuz Keith's guitar is so loud and he's doing some interesting stuff particularly in his solo. 
He is playing it a little bit more like the record still at this point. It's less than 10 years old at this point, which is funny to think now that it's like, even then it was a 10 year old song. Um, but I remember having the Voodoo Lounge CD, like I said, and you know, I liked this song and I was like, oh, they're playing this. This is great. I, I recognize this one, but it's a newer one, you know? Um, and so for many years it had that slot in the set. Yeah. I, I heard somebody leaving a show in 2012 or 2013 complaining that the Stones were playing too many of their new songs. And the only ones that were actually new that they did was obviously Doom and Gloom and uh, One More Shot. But people still think of You Got Me Rocking or even they did Worried About You. And it's like the idea of somebody being like, ah, what's this nonsense? But I always I always joke that there's probably somebody in the audience at the Dallas-Fort Worth shows that went into Ladies and Gentlemen saying, why aren't they playing the last time? Yeah. Why yeah. aren't they playing Satisfaction? Why aren't they playing Under My Thumb? You know, like the, it's a. Then this is an interesting thing about what you were saying is that like, if you've heard Start Me Up on the radio, you don't want to hear it. You want to hear some deeper cuts. But for most people, I think it's the exact opposite, right? Like they they only want to hear the ones that they know. Yeah, you know, because it feels like they're getting homework or something when they hear something that they they don't know. And because you got me rocking, I often wonder if. You Got Me Rockin' shouldn't have been the single from Voodoo Lounge, but obviously Love is Strong did really well. That video was always on TV. But they like playing You Got Me Rocking. I think it kicks ass, and I, I, it's just hilarious to me that people still think of that, which is 30 years old, as one of their newer songs. Yeah, um, but it works here. It worked really well. Uh, Tumbling Dice also, I think, you know, all things considered, again, what we were saying about them not having enough monitors, there being a bit of a scramble on stage to get everything set up properly. Uh, considering all that, Tumbling Dice does work well and everybody hits their cues. There are a couple of weird notes and missed bits here and there, but overall it's a respectable version. And like I say, I at that point had nothing to compare it to because I hadn't even heard Exile on Main Street when I heard this. Um, this was my first exposure, probably. I might have heard it on the radio and not realized what it was, but this was my first time hearing Tumbling Dice and actually focusing on it as a song. And it won me over. Like, I was like, oh, that's a great song. I got to check that out. Yeah, big winner. I, I, again, that's one that I, you know, I do, I do like the studio version, but um, I, I also heard it live first because I didn't have Exile on Main Street uh, growing up. And I, I, uh, I wouldn't say I was disappointed with it when I heard the original version, but I, uh, again, like, my first exposure to most of these songs was at my first show. So that's kind of the template that I hold in my head for each of them. So to me, that's a staple of the live show. And for people who've forgotten, we should remind them that the 1999 No Security Tour was the one you saw first, right? So this is a couple years later, but it's largely the same. And that's a really weird one to have been. Like, I didn't know that they never did Moonlight Mile. I didn't know what a Moonlight Mile was, you know? Um <laughs> Things like live with me that are that are not really in the in the set so often as anymore, you know. But a '90s live with me is hot stuff, you know. That's piping hot. Anyway, we're not we're not here to talk about uh, no, that show. I think, like we were saying, back to that. new songs. Uh, Don't stop is next in the list, and I thought Don't Stop came across really well. Um, it was a bit sloppy sounding again because the blend of guitars wasn't quite right on the night. You know, mixed guitar was quite loud. And, um, you could sort of hear Keith, but not really. And Ronnie, he was kind of manning the GoPro or whatever it was they had attached to the end of his headstock more so than trying to hit every note perfectly in the solos, but the solos were still fluid and beautiful. Yeah. That was real innovation. Yeah. <laughs>
and it looked cool. That's a great you know? solo. And I would, that's one, it's unfortunate that like we won't hear, we probably won't hear that one live again. You know, they're probably not going to, once it's sort of done with for the tour, they just don't really do it. Yeah. Similar to stuff from Bigger Bang, I don't think is going to get a big hearing. We're not going to hear, oh no, not you again on the 2024 tour. Which is too bad. Uh, I think it's a, it's a missed opportunity, but none of, you know, Mick does this based on how well they sold the singles and, or, or how well they, how much airplay they got. You know, he has that, you can see that in China light. And the thing that always drives me crazy is that all my favorite songs are in the don't do category. Mm. Um, but rough justice was banned, you know, so that, that, that doesn't mean that it's a, not a great song, but you know, you're not going to hear it. Love don't stop. Love the solo. Happy to hear it again. Listen to it. Especially because we've been on the 40 Licks thing, been listening to that a bit. And I, I, it was a great era for me. It was a great time to yeah. be, uh, you know, obviously I would have fr- preferred a full record, but 40 Licks was a cool era. Uh, Ruby Tuesday also, again, I'd, I'd heard it on Hot Rocks and I wasn't expecting them to play it. And I didn't realize how anthemic it was until the crowds started picking up the chorus and singing along. Yeah. And um, it's one that sort of takes off. Works really well. Yeah, it it gets some extra energy from the crowd. Um, but also, like we mentioned, Tim Reese uh, moves over to keyboards for this one, and he's playing kind of like a Mellotron flute patch. It's not exactly the Mellotron, but it's similar yeah. in execution, which is, you know, period appropriate to the 60s. And uh, his part is great. Like, he's moved over now, I think, in more recent years to doing it on soprano sax, I think. But yeah, doing the kind of the actual flute sound on keys, you wouldn't think it would work. And there are certainly some dodgy Matt Clifford keyboards from the 80s and early 90s that don't work as well. But this works great. Yeah, I always think that this is it, it might even seem counterintuitive. I, I don't remember if they even did. You can't always get what you want at this show. But that's what you would think they would did, go. Yeah. That you know, you would think that obviously that would you know that that's going to go down well at a big show, especially festivals. But like Ruby Tuesday, I was really really happy to hear it. Um, and I think Keith's playing is very interesting on that one. And Woody and his singing again, too, his his backup part is great as well. Yeah, and Woody with the volume pedal, it's kind of a shame you can't really hear too well Mm. what he's doing but that's probably kind of the point that it's supposed to be like everybody's playing a little subtler there and so there's more room for the melody and you know it can be more kind of expansive um but yeah really went down well always happy i've I've only heard i think they did that at the skydome bigger bang tour and i think that that's the only two times i've gotten to hear it um and uh, yeah, really, really went down right, I think. Yeah, this is um, one of those ones that, like I said, the crowd knows it and they they kick in a little bit extra gas when they start singing along, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, next is You Can't Always Get What You Want. And uh, it's Michael Davis, I think, playing the trombone instead of a French horn for the intro. And then uh, it's a pretty respectable version. And, you know, I think, again... Lisa's under pressure here to hit that really high note. And I don't know if something about the broadcast mix, it's like her voice is a little bit too nakedly out there and it doesn't quite blend as well. But yeah, um, apart from that, like all the solos and everything work well. I, I would be wary of judging it by that 
broadcast mix and this is again why we need a better one i thought it was very interesting with um the more recent tours where they've used the local choirs it was a it was a little frustrating to me because i know lisa can do it she's very consistent with it and sometimes they would you know that moment wouldn't quite come together correctly i'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt here is what i'm saying once we have a better mix i will uh i will i'll see what i think about it I have almost no memory of the, of of this actually from actually being there. Yeah, it was a big sing along, and I do remember. But after Ruby Tuesday, it was like, okay, now we have to sing along. Kind of, it was like this is the section of the show where we're going to have crowd participation, and not the kind where bottles are raining on the stage. Yeah, and there that comes in the next section. Um, but yeah. uh, it's only rock and roll is another one that people want to sing along. So what they're trying to do here is ramp right. up the yeah ramp up the tempo here and connect it somewhat with the next uh, section, which is the Justin Timberlake guest appearance. This part of the show is... Just to briefly touch on It's Only Rock and Roll, it was good. And I do, like, again, this is one of those ones where I'd only heard it on the radio. I didn't have the album. I didn't really have any attachment to the studio version at this point. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. the fact that they were playing it a bit differently was fun and it was cool. Yeah, and again... Um, Now I'm kind of, like, a little tired of this arrangement and I want them to go back to the studio. Yeah, I'm the opposite way. I I much prefer the the faster tempo. I don't... I, I find that the sort of murky 70s thing is very much like a product of its time. And I think that if it's a song about rock and roll, then doing it like Chuck Berry is uh, kind of more appropriate for me. I, I know people get a little tired of this song or that, you know, it's the bar band staple, but I, I like the way they do it. I'm always happy to hear it. And Keith solo is good. I like at this point, he's not like losing focus and like repeating the exact same thing, the exact same way. He is like, Biting into it in a good way. I think he was doing pretty much the same solo as um, there was one. I think it was this one where he's actually playing basically the same thing that he plays in "Oh No, Not You Again," just in a different mm. key. And it's right. a it's a good it's a good joke in the eighties, and it's still relevant now. You know, like it, it <laughs> that solo works no matter what song it's in. It's a great <laughs> bunch of licks. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, like you mentioned, there's the. I, I, it was kind of unexpected, and I remember there being a ripple through the crowd when Justin Timberlake walked out for Miss You, and it was sort of like, uh-oh, how's this going to go? And it went about as you would expect. Uh, there were missiles being hurled. Uh, there were... I think he does a good job. Uh, shouts of invective. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the big moment here that I really remember that is captured very well on the DVD is Keith like going off on the people throwing stuff and pointing them out to security and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it's, it's almost the Altamont. If that cat doesn't coot it, it's, it's like almost <laughs> there. Yeah. But you know, I thought it was interesting to hear, like when you hear Justin Timberlake sing, miss you. Now he's like a Mickey Mouse club guy and he, and he's, he's an incredibly talented performer. Mm-hmm. But there's something kind of funny about hearing him sing so precisely and correctly next to Mick, especially yeah. on a Rolling Stone song, because like the whole, I watched this interview with Alan Sides where he was talking about how he, um, his big thing is when he's mixing is that, you know, you have to be able to hear every word that somebody's singing perfectly clearly. And he took Joni Mitchell's voice and split it out to four channels on the console to EQ it. So, you know, before automation and editing so mm-hmm. that, so that you could just hear absolutely every word perfectly cr- crystal clear 
And it's very funny to me because if you've seen The Wire, they talk about uh, how uh, one character is uh, great at picking out things on wiretaps because he used to hold his ear to the speaker to try to figure out what Mick Jagger was saying in Brown Sugar. Yeah. Like, it's a part <laughs> of the style that you aren't really, like, overcommitted or hyper-correct about anything. You can even hear Justin singing everybody wait so long instead instead of baby why you wait so long because i think he looked up the words on the internet rather than you know uh i i don't i've found it online where it says every hey everybody wait so long and that is not i do not believe that is what the lyric is it's baby why you wait so long no and yes we can certainly um poke fun at his style being incongruous or whatever, but he knew well enough to stick close to Jagger. No matter where he goes, he's going to run off into the crowd, so you better follow him, right? <laughs> like, you know that, like, yeah. the guy calling the tune is the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, so you follow him. And you don't, just for the sake of sticking to script, you don't want to lose sight of that. So, yeah, again, kudos to him. Well, as I said, he's a he's a pro, but you're... But you're looking, and it's just like seeing two different, it's the same with ACDC, right? That like, you're seeing different types of mastery. You know, there, there, are, there are many ways about being, many ways to be good at something. What it's interesting though, to contrast is that Mick literally invented front mannery. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting for the people who say, well, Mick's on autopilot now and he does all this stuff and it's all super choreographed. Compare him to Justin here in the footage, you know, like there's so much more control and precision in the modern kind of pop dance choreography. It's, it's nothing like what Mick does. I mean, Mick is basically out there naked compared to that. And this is not a value judgment. It's just, it's just interesting observation. I have a little bit of a personal story here that I remembered from my um, trip to Memphis where I met uh, a guy in a bar who was a trombone player called Prentice Wolf. And Justin Timberlake had recently come to town. I think he'd backed him up somewhere. And actually, this guy learned Miss You and learned about it from Justin Timberlake. So what I think is great about that is that he's really done his homework and he wanted to continue, you know, he, he obviously liked the song and learned about it. Sometimes, like Jack White didn't know anything about Exile on Main Street till he did until he played with them and did Loving Cup. But sometimes they have this way of like directly educating younger bands. And it was very interesting and cool for me to see that he had passed that on in turn. Interesting. So that yeah, was I didn't, just a neat I didn't story. Know about that. So then it's Keith's set after the kind of hype Miss You happened. Uh, like you mentioned, Nearness of You. It was great. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, happy. I remember being pretty good. Yeah. Happy went down. Like I, I knew... I could very much feel Mick Jagger jokes about this, that when they do an obscure one, there's one guy who goes, yes. And everybody else goes, what? And I was the guy going, yes, I was so thrilled to hear nearness of you. Happy is one that if I'd never had to hear it again, I would not, I love it, but I don't need to hear it anymore. Um, but, but again, this was the first time for me hearing it. So I needed to hear it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, and it's no, no. And, and at this point I was a little more, you know, I would have been more happy with before they make me run or you don't have to mean it or whatever. And the, and I've never really liked it when they drop. I don't like the when they do it in A. I prefer it in the original key, which uh, Steve Jordan says Keith is doing because he's quit smoking. So uh, that's great for me. 
But yeah, I like this. I, like, I do like that Ronnie's doing the lap slide and, you know, they really go off at the end of this. I mean, they just get yeah. after it. It's not like, it stops being a song at a certain point and it's just like, and that's that's the best quality, I think, with the Stones is when it's just, it stops being a song and it starts being the song. Yeah. yeah. I think I've said that before. But definitely the transition to Sympathy for the Devil was whatever, if, if people had gotten a little sleepy, little misty-eyed during uh, Nearness of You and wanted to take a nap, or if they were you know, still fuming about Justin Timberlake, the Sympathy for the Devil transition, I think, brought everybody back on the same page. And then I do remember there being pyro and stuff, and the rest of the show, you know, that people were re-engaged like you said like keith's thing was kind of a bit of a uh polarizing element but yeah this all brought everything it, back it always is people always go to get drinks or take a pee during keith's set and you know i used to take that personally but more for me you know i i don't care you know it's it's part of the deal um i think he probably could have gotten away with sometimes at these things um they might just do one keith song because people don't know Keith's songs as well. So usually he'll just bust out happy and they'll get on with it. But, you know, he went for the full two here and, you know, the, that's a matter of public record now. Um, I definitely remember, you know, Pyro and the guitar solos and everything. Sympathy for the Devil definitely got uh, got everybody moving again. I do remember the ACDC thing landing really well because their set had gone down so great and the crowd were overjoyed when they came out for Rocky Baby. Yeah, and again, it's really interesting to hear them not playing their usual rig because I think what's always very interesting about that is, and I people have done this to me where they make me play some metal guy's rig or something like that, and I still sound like me. So it's kind of fun to hear, like, you know, Malcolm Young is so... He, he almost never played any other guitar but that Gretsch, so it's very funny to see him with the Duesenberg, and it's like, no, the sound is Malcolm. You know, and even though Angus doesn't quite sound the same because he's not using his same amp, I think like you can still hear, you can almost hear the 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 um, the notes much more clearly because it's less it's less distorted. And you know, I don't know if mm-hmm. any, but if I need to say this, but Angus Young really is one of the one of the great lead guitar players of all time. I think it's very easy to underrate them, but they're an extremely good bunch of musicians. The only thing with that one is the tempo is a little, it's a little fast for me. And I think that there are, there are uh, more appropriate ones where it's a little slower, but I think they're, they're getting conscious of the time and everything. So uh, they're trying to just get into it and it it comes off very well. It still works just fine. Yeah. And I remember after the next, that track and then the next track after honky tonk women, people were getting a little tired. Um, people like you you'd been out there all day i'd only been out there for about four hours at that point but that's still a long time to be out in the hot sun and be rocking out so um the rest of honky tonk women and satisfaction to me was a bit of a blur and then i remember turning to my buddy and being like they're going to come back out and play jumping jack flash so we may as well start moving towards the exit (laughs) because i i i know what jumping jack flash sounds like but then when they came out and they started playing it i was like oh no i don't (laughs) because what i see and you see this at a lot of shows um, is that you go nah, 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 and then just everyone starts leaving, right? Uh, like it's just there. Yeah. And honestly, like I used to, uh, I used to say I would, I used to find this again, I used to take this personally, but I stayed for the whole thing and I ended up having to walk home on the highway like a Mad Max road warrior. So, you know, I, I do kind of get it, but <laughs> yeah, like real, 
what I do love about the DVD version of the the mix of uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash is that the Dan Electro sitar guitar is actually sitting kind of better than you than you heard on any of the other DVDs. Mm, because yeah. I think it's a really cool thing, but um, I think it works better on Street Fighting Man than Jumping Jack Flash, but you do kind of miss the sustain and the pokiness of, you know, Ronnie's, he normally does it on like a Strat or something where it's a little more in your face. But this was balanced actually, at least mix-wise, it's balanced uh, pretty nicely here. And it, it, it it's a valid thing to do. It's a, it's a good approach. And I, I think it's cool that they take risks like that. Yeah, this one's a keeper for sure. Um, and if you can track down this DVD, it's worth having in your collection. It's two discs, but there's only 40 minutes of stones on it. So balance that however you want. Um, but like we said, we want the full set like properly mixed. So if anybody out there pays attention to this and can volley for that on our behalf, please do. Um, and we've rambled about this for a long time, so maybe we better wrap up. Well, obviously Mick... Mick listens to us, and that's why we always get the archival releases that we want. But anyway, yeah, so let's close it. It was a good yeah. time. Um, I remember it well. It was 20 years ago plus, and I think this DVD will be celebrating its 20th anniversary next year. So it seems like a, a good time to do another reissue, I think. Um, but yeah, with no further ado, thanks for listening. Um, please, again, write to us if you like the podcast. Please subscribe to it. Um, you can always get us at uh, rollingstonespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, hope you had a good time. I've been Tim Lindsay. And I continue to be Christian Bonner. Until the next time. We say goodbye. Goodbye.